It got significantly more chilly in the last few hours, but it doesn't matter. This show is hot, and we're bringing it to you for the next hour. So thank God you're here, and uh, you want to join us here in the Disability Law Show. You can do so. It's just a couple minutes after 1 o'clock on a lovely Saturday. The number to call in and be part of the show, get on air with us, 416-872-1010. If you prefer to text any questions, you can do so at 71010. John Scholes here, uh, as always, and my good pal Tamara Gopian and James Fireman, both courtesy of San Fury, Tamarkin. LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country, reaching out to them. And they have wonderful teams behind them. Here's how you do it. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. If you prefer to do it off air and have a more lengthy private chat, that number and that email are good anytime to go. But we got lots of emails and stuff to get through today. Uh, Tamara and James. Tomorrow, I guess, uh, do you have a week that was or something to, to kick us off, pal? What's going on? Absolutely. I wanted to start off talking about a couple of uh, calls and interesting things that happened this week relating to long COVID. And I know we talk about this periodically here and there, but it's still a thing, John. Yeah. And it's still a thing because people are getting reinfected. And the reinfection can actually amplify uh, health issues or bring back up health issues. So this topic came up in two instances, two settings this week. One was related to uh, a woman who called us and I spoke with her and her whole situation was, look, I have long COVID or I had COVID last year. Uh, I attempted to return back to work on modified duties. She went through this process with her employer to be on and off work for a period of time. And then ultimately it got to a point where her primary treating doctor said, enough's enough. We need to take you off the work setting and really start to evaluate how are we going to treat your long COVID symptoms. And by doing that, she was referred to a number of different specialists, rheumatologists, neurologists, the list is long, uh, a psychologist as well. And so when it came time for her to apply for long-term disability benefits, which is the, the time frame she's in right now, she really wasn't sure, how do I apply for this benefit given what my health issues are? And as we know, long COVID isn't something that's seen in one or two screening tests. It's typically multifactorial. In other words, there's lots of different health issues that can impact individuals. It's not consistent from one individual to the next. And the treatment isn't always very well known either, because of course, this is something that's new on the horizon by way of a virus for a lot of um, treatment professionals. And so they're really looking at this in a number of different ways. So the advice that I provided her, and we do, we give the similar advice, John, and, and I hope James is on now too, to a lot of different types of health issues. Long COVID isn't the only one, but what we encourage individuals to do is put everything forward to the insurance company, all of it. You want all of that information available when you're applying for long-term disability benefits because all of those symptoms together likely created the profile that prevented her from working. And so you don't want to leave anything out. And one of the things that the adjuster was focused on with her particular instance was, look, what's happening strictly from a mental health perspective. And so her, her query to us was, look, what do I put in the disability application? And number two, what if the insurance company only focuses on the mental health aspect of it and nothing else? And I said, look, if they do that, that's a flawed analysis, of course, depending on what it is that they say to you. But either way, you shouldn't resist putting all that information forward because it won't be shared with your employer. That's privileged and confidential information. 
but it will also create the right medical profile to allow all of it to be considered. And if it's not, that's a problem for the insurance company. So that was one of the contexts in which we talked about long COVID this week. And the other one was this idea of reinfection. We actually had a woman who uh, suffered long COVID, asserted a disability claim, was denied, ended up going back to work in a different setting and actually contracted the virus again and has all the same symptoms again. So we were talking about uh, in our group meeting this week about would that trigger the recurrence provision? What sort of analysis do we have to give uh, to think about could this be the same claim, similar claim, which insurer is the one to go to? And we talk about this sometimes in different settings, but recurrence in and of itself is, is this. Most disability policies will have a section that says, if your health issues come up within a six-month window again and are related to an initial disability claim for which you were approved and paid, then you can come back onto claim, receive your benefits again in that window of time without having to wait for that waiting period that they, most people have to at the start of the disability claim. So it just basically clicks back on upon you you know, submitting further medical information. And so the conclusion to that was, yes, absolutely. If it occurs within that six month window, just because you may have had um, strung together a couple of months of work with a different employer doesn't necessarily bar you from making a recurrence claim to that initial disability insurer in respect of long COVID. James, are you on with us now? I, I believe I am. I nice. <laughs> there he is. What's going what on, think? pal? What do you think? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think these uh, the long COVID claims are tricky, mostly because at the adjuster level, when you're applying, they see COVID and they almost invariably are going to deny no matter what else you put on there, unless there's something that is just too obvious that they can't do anything but approve. But those are rare. But once they've denied and it gets into litigation, it has been my experience, and I know this is a shared experience amongst the rest of us in the group, that when you start litigation and the insurer comes to the table, they don't want any part of bringing that to trial. None of the insurers want to be on the wrong side of the first LTD COVID case that winds up getting decided in court and having a public decision out there that not only shows that they've lost this case, but confirms what we all know anyway, that having long COVID is absolutely a genuine basis for long-term disability benefits. So it is one of those things where it is you know, problematic at the start, but once you get going on it and once you start litigation, it's actually something that you can use to gain leverage because mm. they really do not want these cases going to trial. I, uh, I have a case I wanted to talk about, and it's actually, it's a lady that contacted me a couple of weeks ago. She's not a client, but she was just looking for some advice. She has a lovely daughter who has purchased her a trip. She felt her mom needed to get away, purchased her a trip to Jamaica. Nice. Wonderful gift. Yeah. She is on LTD. She's got a mental health disability. She's on LTD. And she wrote me and says, James, you know, I, this just happened. I listened to your show. Am I able to go? Am I able to do this? I said, well, first of all, you got to take a look at what your policy says around travel. Most LTD policies are going to have travel restrictions, in, but not all. And she said, well, I looked at my policy and I don't see anything there. And so she sent it to me. I took a look through and sure enough, no travel restrictions, which is nice, which is nice. So that means that she can go if she wants to. And so she says, well, 
okay, if I can go, do I have to let the insurance company know? And so my, my take on this is no. If there's no travel restrictions, you're not required to tell the insurer that you're going to go away on a vacation, nor do I think you really ought to. But that's in the context of going on a brief vacation. If you're going for, let's say, two weeks or less, I, and you're, certainly if there's no travel restrictions, but even if there are and you're within them. In other words, let's say you're going on a 10-day trip and it says you don't need permission if you're going for more than or for less than two weeks. I would still say as long as you're within whatever the policy says, if there's no restrictions or you're under the restrictions, I wouldn't. What I would do is I would absolutely go to all of my medical service providers and make sure that I have their permission and approval that it is medically safe for me to go and that there is nothing that I need to do. And if there is, that I make sure that I follow that and make sure that you can continue your treatment while you're away. So that when your insurer learns about it subsequently, they can't say that you did anything but abide by your policy. The reason I wouldn't bring it up at the outset is because insurers will often use that as a basis to suggest that you're okay. And if you think I'm going overboard with this, I'll tell you about another case that I have where my client does not have a travel restriction, just like the lady that contacted me. And she has all sorts of medical issues it's one of the clearest cases of disability that I've ever seen. Not a single person, and she's gone to see six or seven different specialists that all say there's absolutely no way she can do anything. She's got endometriosis. She's got all sorts of other issues, including chronic pain with central sensitization. This has been going on for years. Everybody is well aware that she can't work. It's just not possible. She is from Africa. And so she let her insurer know that her plan was to travel to Africa to go visit her family for a couple of months and to get treatment because she can't afford it here. And she doesn't have a support system here. And all of her doctors said, yes, this would be therapeutic. for her. This would be something that would be good for her. It would help her. And they not only say that she's okay to do it, you know, it's going to be difficult for her to manage the flight. It's a long flight. But that once she gets there, it'll be much better for her and it'll allow her to get regular treatment, be taken care of by her. So the insurer gets this information and they say, well, you know, if you can go on a flight to Africa, then you're okay to work. The issue was never her ability to sit for, for a long flight. That's not what her job is. Her job is not to sit on an airplane for a long flight. Her job is a, an executive assistant position that requires her to be alert and productive eight hours a day, five days a week, which is obviously very different than being able to endure a flight in order to get somewhere where you're going to feel better. So if you think insurers might not take it out of context, you're absolutely wrong, which is why I say if you're not required to tell them, I wouldn't. But I, as I told the lady who contacted me, I would absolutely take that vacation. You cannot live your life trying to satisfy insurers for things that they have no right to be satisfied by. Great opening salvo, guys. Want to take a short break before we get into a bunch of emails. And we've now got open phone lines, too. How about that? Bring it on. You called us last week. Call us this week. Come be that third person on air and uh, and join us fourth for that matter. 416-872-1010 to call into the show for the remaining uh, remaining time of the hour. Text 71010 as well. And we'll slide over to some of those emails very shortly. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue right here. Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
That is so true. It is 120. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate it. Uh, James Fireman, Tamara Gobian, both here. Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP. You can reach out anytime to both and their teams. If you want to have a chat off air, 1-855-821-5900 is how you, uh, you go about doing that. But we can also take your calls here uh, live on air. You'll want to bring them on. That's uh, that's simple. 416-872-1010 for any questions. Text 71010 as well. Uh, failing that, we'll get back into some questions and email, guys. Um, someone returning to work, how about this one, James, uh, do their disability benefits and boom, smack done. Are there scenarios maybe where the insurance company is obligated to keep paying benefits? What do you say about that? Well, there are a lot of variables at play here. So it really does depend on the situation. So if someone is, uh, let's say they just returned to work full time and they're earning the money that they had before, almost certainly the benefits are going to end at that point, particularly if they have a group policy. Individual policies can vary in all, all sorts of different ways. So we'll leave those aside for the time being. But if you're less than that, if you're not returning back full time, there are a lot of situations where your benefits will continue at least in part. So very often when an insurance company thinks that it's about time for you to get off benefits or they've made that determination anyway, uh, they will propose a return to work program in coordination usually employer where you'll go back to work on a graduated basis, typically starting out maybe three days a week, half days, graduating to four and five days and six hours, eight hours, et cetera. So within maybe five, six, eight weeks, you're back full time. And so depending on how much you're working and how much you're earning during that transition from part-time to full-time, there may be continuing benefits during that period. It depends on the formula in the policy, and those can change. So you'll want to take a look at what the policy says and how that's going to work, and your adjuster should be able to tell you. uh, If you work this much, this is what you'll continue to get. There is typically something called an all-source maximum in there that will allow you to earn up to a certain amount. So if you're not returning to your own job or, um, let's say, you're self-employed, Uh, You can typically continue to receive benefits as long as the total of your income, as well as the total of the benefits you're being paid, doesn't exceed a certain amount of your pre-disability income. So if you were earning, let's say, $100,000 a year, and the all-source maximum is 85%, it means that if your income is more than, say, $85,000 per year, then they start reducing your disability benefits. And so if you're earning, let's say, $10,000 a year, you're just working part-time on the side, you're not doing much, that's going to be underneath the amount where your benefits would start reducing. But once you start earning something like $17,000, $18,000 at that income level, then they're going to start taking off money dollar for dollar. There are other formulas as well, too, that can get very complicated, where it isn't so much a certain level that it starts reducing by. It starts reducing from the first dollar, but it's shared, and it can get very complicated. If you're in this scenario and you're thinking about going back to work, first of all, don't go back to work unless you get medical clearance from your own doctors. I don't care what the insurance company says. If your own doctors are telling you you can't go back to work, it means you can't go back to work. Right. But if your doctors are telling you that it's okay to go back, or at least it's okay to try, and you have to stay within whatever parameters they set out, whatever limitations and restrictions they uh, provide on a medical basis, then stay within those restrictions and limitations. But then it's okay to try. 
but you'll want to take a look at what the policy says. You're going to want to understand exactly what it means, particularly if you're not able to ramp up to full time. You want to know what that's going to mean for your benefits. And if you're not sure, then give us a call. We're happy to help. Uh, we'll take a look at the policy, look through it, and let you know what it says and how it's likely to work out. Tomorrow, what do you think? Well, it brings to mind a matter I was working on this week, actually. I've been retained on a, fi- on a file or a claim like this where the dispute is how much actually the insurer is obligated to pay over and above the limited earnings that my client was able to uh, or is able to continue to sustain and work. And her situation was quite unique and, and very compelling, of course. Uh, but it, it was a context where she had tried gradual returns, had tried full-time work, and it was very clear that as soon as she surpassed a certain number of hours or capacity of work, that her health issues would come right back uh, and she would be finding herself you know, completely unable to work for a period of time once more. So it was a you know, trial and error kind of process between herself, her employer, and her doctor. And of course, the insurer supported all of this until they basically became impatient and said, hey, you know what, we think you could do way more work. And they cut her off. And this was many years down the line. And so, of course, she reached out to us and I'm in the process of of dealing with her claim. And what's interesting about it is that I think it's undeniable. I mean, the insurer has the same medical information that my client has, um, you know, the client has what I would describe as a benevolent employer, an employer who was willing to work with her and really accommodate her limitations and restrictions. And the, and the insurer is gaining from that. They're getting you know reduced monthly benefit exposure as a result of the fact that my client has, to her credit, committed to the idea of at least working as much as she can without sort of you know taking a tailspin back down the, the tunnel of not being able to work at all. And yes, it's nuanced, but it's important that people who are listening understand that it doesn't give the insurance company a pass, right? Just because you've got a partial work capacity, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not also entitled to some measure of disability benefits. Now, look, it is a case-by-case evaluation. The medical you know, basis for the ongoing restrictions, very, very important. They have to be very clear and present and there. But I think what what's frustrating to me is I can imagine lots of people in a situation like this who just figure, well, I'm back at at work. So it must mean that I'm not entitled to further disability benefits. And that is just not always the case. I want to get to an email, guys. I'll I'll throw this one towards you uh, right away tomorrow from Nick. says, hey, guys, uh, my wife unexpectedly suffered a stroke about a year ago. She already had some health issues, but managed to work. Now she has partial paralysis and really struggles with doing even routine things. Her neurologist has already advised that her condition is permanent and she will not be able to work. The insurance company knows this and asked her to apply for CPP disability. We did it and got retroactive payment of $15,000 from the government. The insurance company says we have to pay them this money, and if we don't, they're going to cut off my wife's disability benefits. I feel like the insurance company tricked us. I feel stuck because we uh, we use the money to pay our bills. Do we have any options here? Of course you use the money to pay the bills, Nick. I, I totally understand this. And so let's unpack a little bit for our listeners what's happening here. The disability policy will routinely say, that we are obligated to pay you X if there's medical support that you're totally disabled. However, if you come into other sources of income that are related to your disability, and the big one is CPP disability, then we get a credit for that, okay? 
Some policies even say you must apply for these other disability sources of income. And if you don't, we're just going to assume that you are eligible for it. And we're going to estimate the amount you're going to get anyway and take that as a deduction against what your monthly LTD benefit is. So the communication of this kind of language in the disability policy, John, sometimes just doesn't make its way properly from claims adjuster to claimants. And I absolutely understand the frustration from claimants who don't understand, look, they told us to apply and now we've got to pay them money. Like, how does that make any sense whatsoever? And you're right. There is something you're sort of scratching your head in a situation like this. But at the end of the day, the the disability policy is drafted typically by the disability insurer. Okay. And they are going to stand behind these words and they are going to use these terms in their condition that conditions that they've negotiated, by the way usually with your employer, to say, look, we're entitled to this money, so we get this compensation. And so, yes, the lack of transparency, I think, in what Nick describes is really problematic from the insurance company's perspective. But at the end of the day, I I don't think there's a lot of ways around the fact that the insurer is entitled to what is otherwise a lump sum payment that was retroactively given to Nick's wife and likely overlapped during the same period that his wife received long-term disability benefits. So look, there's more we can comment on with Nick's situation. I'm also interested to hear James's input if he's got anything to add. So why don't we pick it up after our next break and we'll talk a little bit more about how to navigate Nick's situation. You bet. Stand by, Nick. We're not done with your answer yet, so uh, so do that. And for you as well, you can always reach out and maybe you'll get uh, your email on the show. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca or you can skip that and call us right now too. 416-872-1010 live on the air. And we'll continue with the Disability Law Show. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back to the Disability Law Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. All right, one thirty-five. plenty of time still to go and to call into the show. Uh, emails anytime, of course, help at disabilityrights.ca, but 416-872-1010 is exactly how you do that. In that regard, uh, we'll get to, to Heather, who's been standing by. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much. Keep your uh, radio off if you, if you can, pal. That'd be great. No worries. I have a different phone. Just one second. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm driving. Sure. What's uh, What's your question? Can you hear me okay without feedback? Yeah, we're good. Okay, good. I have a question about the disability tax credit. Yep, go ahead. Um, I had my doctor fill it out, but he felt as though I wouldn't qualify for it. But I would rather fill it in and send it in and see what they have to say about it. But he included a secondary note feeling as though I wouldn't qualify for it. Should I include that note regardless? What do you mean by a secondary note? Like it's a personal note from him saying that he doesn't feel I have all the issues that I say I have. Wow, okay. Um, That's that's very unprofessional, right? Well, I, I, I don't I don't want to comment on whether it's professional or not. I'll say it's certainly unfortunate. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure why. Can do you mind sharing your, what your disability is? If you don't want no, to, I, that's fine. But it might be useful. No, I have I have multiple sclerosis, and I understand my note for my doctor stuff isn't as up to date because I had um an episode during the pandemic, and I chose not to go to my neurologist because 
if I did, I would have been taken off work and I was an essential worker and I wanted to keep on working. So I haven't followed up. I'm going to see my neurologist who will update all my notes and make sure it's followed up with. So I just don't know what to do with the paperwork. Wait until after it's all followed up or find a different doctor who will actually well, the, 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 That's an interesting question. Um, it sounds as though based on what your doctor is including, that you're not going to get approved. Whether that's appropriate or not is a whole other question. And I would say absolutely go find another doctor if you if you feel that what the doctor is saying is incorrect. Um, is you know this sort of gets to an issue though, which is whether or not having a particular diagnosis is sufficient in order to either get disability benefits from a private insurer or the disability tax credit or CPP disability. And so it isn't really about having the diagnosis. Having MS, as um, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, is it means you're somewhere on a continuum. And that can change. And it certainly depends on what stage of MS you're at. And we don't even need to go into that detail. But so saying say you have- the pandemic, it all changed and everything about my health changed. So it's completely opposite, but I fought back with multiple sclerosis, you fight back with muscle memory. So I feel as though my doctor was judging me because I worked really hard on muscle memory, but that also comes with looking good physically, but multiple sclerosis is on the inside, right? So I do have all those issues. He just sure, my, my, point, my point is only though that it is not um, initially uh, a, a diagnosis that means you automatically can't work. If you catch it, you know, if you're diagnosed relatively early, then in the early stages of it, particularly if you if you have the uh, relapsing, remitting, and you're in a good period, you probably would be able to. But once you get to the progressive stage, you probably wouldn't. Sorry, Heather. Sorry, the tax credit, the disability tax credit, you can receive while you're working as well. It's possible, but in order to qualify for you need to show that you have a severe and prolonged impairment. And typically the way that's interpreted is in, in a dollar sense, I think it's something like $16,000 per year. If you're capable of earning that amount, you're typically not going to qualify. But more specifically than that, the test requires not only a severe and prolonged impairment, but you also have to show that for one or two of the categories they set out. A severe and prolonged impairment for walking, for mental function, dressing, feeding, eliminating, hearing, speaking, vision, or life-sustaining therapy. So if you have a severe and prolonged impairment for one or two of those categories, then you might qualify. That's a really difficult threshold to pass. And it's not necessarily the case that because you have MS, you will pass it. At a certain point, particularly once you get to the progressive stage, I would think that you would. I, you know, I'm not qualified to make that like, determination, I mean, I of course. I have difficulties walking. I have difficulties with all those things on a daily basis, right? It's just, and, yeah. and if you feel like it is severe and prolonged and you feel like your doctor is underselling that, then you need to find another doctor. I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to tell you whether or not you, you would pass that. No, I think I would rather wait to send in the paperwork when I get another doctor and then I'll follow up with my Make sure everything in my doctor things are in order so they can confirm it with that. So I don't have to I, feel like I'm not being believed, right? Yeah, I think that's wise. Thank you so much for calling in, Heather. 
Heather, appreciate your time. We got a text here as well, guys. By the way, the number that Heather used to call in, you can come on the show and do that right now too, 416-872-1010. And uh, the text number is 71010. This one from Jim uh, Tamara says, uh, I've been an LTD for over a year. The LTD benefit is paid by the insurer, but the dental and drugs paid by the company. That's how the flex benefit plan was set up. On the assumption I will be on LTD for a long time and that if my company terminated my employment eventually, do I lose my drug and uh, dental benefits? I asked because I suffered an eye stroke and medication, i.e. injections to prevent blindness, costs my company $2,000 every four weeks. I'm also on 10 different medications and burden to my company with respect to drug costs. Any help would be appreciated. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that text, Jim. And I, you know, the thing that we talk about with disability benefits usually is that it's tied to your employment and ex- and it can be, or it can't be right. We have private plans and group plans with extended healthcare benefits. It's all tied to your employment. Right. And so what I always encourage people to understand is that yes, if you are potentially terminated from your employment, that benefits package does end. So you want to be mindful of the fact that you are continuing to qualify for extended health coverage so long as you're employed. But one doesn't necessarily flow from the other if, let's say, your employer has a policy around how long extended health benefits coverage lasts. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in Jim's shoes, I want to understand, is there a policy that's going to boot me off the plan regardless, regardless of whether or not you're continuing to be on an approved disability leave and receiving your long-term disability benefits. Because I can tell you more and more, I'm seeing employers putting in caps. They'll say, you know, after two years of a work absence, we're not going to continue to allow you to have your benefits coverage. Rightly or wrongly, by the way, folks, and we've got a whole other show that talks about whether or not that's appropriate, but just strictly from a disability benefit LTD versus extended health coverage. If I'm Jim, I want to know, regardless of what's happening with LTD, is there a policy that could bring my extended health care plan to an end? Because typically, yes, if you're ending your employment, all of those coverages end. Your long-term disability benefits, though, can survive, and your entitlement to that can survive regardless of your employment status. Even for the length tomorrow of your severance, they are on severance for a year? Would they not continue then? So yes, in Ontario, there is a runoff period, John, you're right. Um, And that runoff period typically lines up with what the Employment Standards Act or the legislation in Ontario Hmm. that protects most employers, whatever that period of time of your notice period could be typically. Uh, But yes, we're now getting into the weeds about the employment entitlements. So there are nuances here, Jim. And so if you're getting any trouble with your employment uh, and your coverage, and you're wondering whether or not this could be a possible employment claim against the employer, don't hesitate to contact us as well. Myself and a whole bunch of other lawyers uh, on our team not only deal with disability, but employment claims as well. And so go ahead. I want to throw one more thing out there too. Um, a lot of this is a function of your employer. And for large institutional employers, it's not so uncommon, especially as Tamar was saying these days, that they do have fairly strict policies that they abide by. And at a certain point, they'll cut you off. For a lot of other employers, though, uh, it just depends on who is running the, you know, the, the uh, benefits policies. And sometimes right. it's just at the bottom of a pile of paper and they don't get to it for two years. So you consider whether it's worth poking the bear is really what I'm getting at. Good point. 
Yep. And a reminder, guys, tomorrow, 1 p.m., you'll catch the Employment Law Show here on uh, on the station. So you can tune in for that for more details on that particular angle of the uh, of the law program that we do here uh, all over uh, every weekend. But now we're going to take a short break. We'll give you time to grab a phone, call in if you got a question, 416-872-1010 or that text number 71010 as well. We'll continue Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. All right, and we're back. It is one fifty Saturday. More emails and uh, questions coming through. You still got some time to make that call into the radio station. Ask your question live, right? 416-872-1010. The text number while we're doing the show is 71010 as well. Uh, James Fireman, Tamar Gopian, ST Law, Sanfiru, Tamark, and LLP is where you want to reach out to anytime at one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, Christine's up next, James. I'll throw this one your way. Says, uh, I work for a large financial institution. I've had no work issues at all for years. Earlier this year, my team and I got an email announcing that we were getting a new manager. He happened to be my boss in another organization years ago who harassed and bullied me to the point where I had to quit. When I heard that I had to work for him again, it triggered a mental breakdown and my doctor put me off work. I got a few months of short-term disability benefits, but was cut off because the insurance company said it was a workplace issue. I'm under treatment for PTSD and I have other physical health issues that are being investigated. My doctor supports that I stay off work and suggested that I get some advice on whether I have a case. What do you think? It's a great question, Christine. So this issue of whether or not a disability that is triggered by your work environment, especially a toxic work environment, and whether or not that is something that will entitle you to benefits is something that comes up all the time. We see it almost every day. And it's something that insurers almost invariably will intentionally simplify to their advantage. Here's what I mean by that. Whether or not a disability is triggered by your work environment is totally irrelevant. What is relevant is whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation, not your job, but your occupation. The distinction I'm making between job and occupation is the job is doing your occupation for your particular employer in the environment that you're working. Your occupation is what your job entails, the duties and responsibilities. And you could do that with any employer in theory. And so if you're in a situation, let's say you're in a toxic work environment, and you have a situational disability, a situational anxiety or depression, let's say, that prevents you from being able to be productive in your work environment. But if you were offered the exact same job in a different environment with a different employer, and you would be able to function in that environment, you're not entitled to benefits. Gotcha. And you know the distinction is it's disability insurance, not toxic work environment insurance. But that's not necessarily what Christine is talking about here. Sure, she is saying that her disability, her PTSD, was triggered because this former boss came in and he bullied her before. That was the triggering event. But that does not mean that because her boss was the trigger that she would be able to go work in another organization. Maybe she could, maybe she couldn't. I'm certainly not qualified to say. And Christine didn't really give me enough information to be able to make that assessment on the facts that she's provided. But it is more than possible that she has this situation that triggers PTSD, but 
prevents her from being able to work in any situation. If it is bad enough and if her uh, symptoms are such that it's no longer an issue of just being in her own workplace environment, but that it is affecting her in her day-to-day life, even when she's away from work, then that's something that almost certainly is going to affect her no matter where she is until she gets proper treatment and her her symptoms resolve. And so if that is the case, if her PTSD is now and at this point preventing her from being able to work, even if she was with a different employer, then she's absolutely entitled to benefits. And it matters not at all that it was triggered by her work environment. But we we see insurers do this all the time. They will look through the file, they will ask questions, and if they see anything about workplace issues, they will just say, okay, this one we're not paying anymore. It's a workplace issue and we don't pay for that. That is not the analysis they're supposed to do. The analysis is supposed to determine whether or not they are capable of working in their own occupation. And if you can't, regardless of the trigger, you're entitled to benefits. Mark? 100% 100% agree, John John and James. I mean, it's it's so compelling when you say it, James, and I believe it every time. And of course, I endorse it every time. And I can't say it enough to people. The persistence of the health issues, that's the key here. It's not the triggering event necessarily. It's the fact that there's ongoing symptoms that are preventing her from working, regardless of the fact that she's not in that workplace setting anymore. Uh, the other thing that was interesting, though, in the email that Christine described was that she was approved for short-term disability benefits for a few months. And there was resistance beyond that period of time to continue to pay her the benefit. The thing is, though, folks, the the test for disability is the same for short-term and long-term, almost virtually exactly the same, at least for that initial own occupation period. So if there was an acknowledgement and an acceptance by the same insurer that you certainly qualified, Christine, for a few months and then didn't later on, I'm wondering why. What could have possibly changed when there are ongoing health issues and other things going on in her email? She says physical issues as well. What changed in that scenario? Is it because maybe the insurer didn't want to get her on the long-term claim? Is it because maybe the insurer is the one who pays the long-term claim? I'm throwing some ideas out here other than the fact that, frankly, if there's an opportunity to close it out, they will. But I think it makes it that much more prejudicial, frankly, for the insurer to have done so after accepting for a period of time that that triggering event was irrespective, that she did meet the test of total disability and benefits were approved and paid for a period of time. Want to get to a uh, quick call here, guys, if we uh, got some time to run this through. We will. We got some time. Got two and a half. Romel, how are you? Go ahead. What's your question? Hi there. Good afternoon. Uh, So I'm a young person uh, dealing with an ongoing low back problem for the last few months. So I've been off of work. Uh, I've gone to do tests like x-rays and MRIs. Uh, In the last two months, my workplace has offered me a package to come back to work on full-time doing modified duties. Um, However, my healthcare provider says that I'm not in good standing to return back to work. And at the same time, workers' compensation is sort of siding with my workplace, wanting me to go back to work as well, but not offering me any financial assistance, and my short-term disability got denied as well. I'm surprised the short-term disability got denied in the circumstances, uh, Ramel. I think if I'm you, you kind of want to delve into that a little more as to what the short-term disability provider is saying to you if your own doctors are supporting that you're not capable of working. Now, look, if it's the doctor is saying a partial work capacity or a capacity to work with some accommodation, that makes it a little bit trickier. 
then I can see a scenario then where the disability insurer might say, you know what, you do have a partial work capacity. And because of that, you don't meet that threshold of total disability, quote unquote. I mean, the the fact that WSIB is siding with your employer, I mean, this is a little bit outside our realm. James and I don't really do the workers' comp stuff. I can tell you they're a whole separate entity and they're self-governing. Um, and I've heard lots of good and bad about workers' compensation. Uh, so, but there's a there's a couple of uh, paralegals in, in the city who can probably help you with that one. But the short-term claim, that's the one that's worrying me. Do you, do you know, Ramel, is that your employer who pays it or is it an insurance company that pays the short-term claim? I believe they do like a partnership with the insurance claim. Um, the insurance company is independent. Is independent. And so they're the payor of the benefit. Okay, interesting. So I would get delve into what it is that your doctor has said about your capacity to work or not work. Has there been a clear opinion given that you should not be working at all? Yes. Um, my doctor, periodically, he does a reassessment to see where I'm at in my condition and Every time that I've gone so far, he's just understood where I'm at and he says that I'm not in good physical standing. All right. I think we're going to take this one offline, guys, because I think we're at the end of our show now. Uh, Ramel, we'll, we'll reach out. I'll reach out to you. Ramel, thank you so much. And here's how you do that. Now that we are done for another day, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time with Disability Law Show.